When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Scott Benjamin. And I am Ben Bolin. And today we have another listener suggestion, and I think it is a, uh, an outstanding suggestion. You know what? Yes, it is, Scott. Literally, it stands out. Uh, we were both pretty interested in this when we heard from this guy. Yeah, that's right. This one comes from Aaron S., and Aaron wrote in uh, via email and says, oh, well, he says, first of all, congratulations on your 600 episodes. Thank you. Uh, it's been a great podcast to listen to and has brought many hours of entertainment and education for me. Oh, Not we, bad. Yeah, we have our ups and downs. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. So he uh, he goes on to say, um, I thought a great episode suggestion would be the history of the Bathurst 1000 race and track. It's one of the biggest events in the V8 supercar series. And uh, with it only about a month away. I thought it would be the perfect time to do an episode on it. Thanks for reading my email and keeping uh, and keep up the amazing work you guys do. Oh, that's very nice. Wow, very thank com- you, Aaron. Very complimentary. Aaron. Yeah, I appreciate it. And uh, the good news is this episode is going to air right before the 2014 edition of the Bathurst 1000. Ah, how appropriate! Or if we're being fancy, apropos. Uh, yeah, Scott, where do you want to start with this? Because this race has some history. Yeah, long history. This not, uh, this not under the same name, but. A lot of history. Well, the track itself opened way back in 1938, and it's not called the Bathurst Track or anything yep. like that. It's in Bathurst, mm-hmm. uh, but it is actually the Mount Panorama Circuit in Bathurst, New, uh, New South Wales, Australia. Mm-hmm. We won't say that whole name uh, throughout the entire podcast, but uh, the Bathurst Circuit, the uh, the Mount Panorama Circuit, maybe we'll call it that. The Bathurst 1000, which is currently called the Super Cheap Auto Bathurst 1000, right. is a 1,000-kilometer race, so that's about 620 miles, and the track is sometimes called the Mountain because it's got these long uphill and downhill straights. It's a very unusual track. I'm, it's, you want to go into the stats, I guess? Yeah, sure. It's uh, it's a little under 4 miles or 6.2 kilometers, and it has 23 turns, which is uh, which I think is interesting here because... You know, as a driver, you have to learn the circuit intimately. So you have to know which turns you can accelerate toward, which turns you need to be very careful around. And this thing has some straightaways too, right, Scott? Yeah, some long, long straights. Now, the uh, the Conrad straight is probably the one that most people are familiar with or have heard of. 
and I believe it was named, and I'm going to just have to search the uh, the depths of my memory here, Ben, because I didn't write it down, but um, <laughs> I believe it was named the Conrad Strait back in 1939 when someone broke a connecting rod on that straight in a you know like in a grand prix race or something like that ah. and uh you know it was named for that uh for that happening for that event Ooh. i guess and most of these turns will have names you know of individuals who um you know have either crashed or you know there was some kind of uh um, event that happened on that turn and that's how a lot of racetracks end up with the names that they give these turns they're not always named right from the get-go mm-hmm. you know the uh you know Murray's corner or whatever it is. Right. That's kind of, uh, that's kind of uncool to Murray. Yeah. <laughs> if he's starting in the race. Well, true. Uh, there's one of the notorious turns of this circuit is known as Hell Corner and it is called Hell Corner, uh, not in some ironic way or, uh, sarcastic way, the way you call a big person Little John or something. It's called Hell Corner because it's a 90 degree left hander. Yeah. It's a, it's a uh, difficult one to make and that's not the only 90 degree, uh, turn. Right. On this course. Now, one thing I want to mention here, and I've looked this up, and again, I'm, I'm searching through my notes here. I'm not going to find it, but I'm going to just wing it again. Wing it. All right. I believe that the, uh, well, I don't believe I know this, Ben, they added three turns to this track uh, not long ago. I want to say it was like in the uh, mid-80s, mid-1980s. Mm, okay. Um, the, the Conrad Strait was even longer than it is now, and they had to add a uh, kind of a, a series of three Pretty fast turns, but series of three turns that would scrub off enough speed so that when they do make this uh, this le- extreme left hand turn, uh, that you know they wouldn't be at full speed. It was a very dangerous uh, part of the track for a long, wow. long time, and uh, this was kind of the solution. I think a driver had uh, perished on that corner the year before. He was a touring car driver of some sort. I'll have to find the note. I'm sure I'll run across it as we go through here, but um, it, it was it was created in response to that event happening, and and that's the case with a lot of these things. You know, we've seen that before where they they break up long straights because the speeds just get too fast. The machines become too quick. Right. And that's something that we found in several other circuit races like this. Now, here's here's what's interesting. When we talk about the current track, and you said the current track dates back to the 30s, uh, the race ultimately dates back to 1960 when it was called the Armstrong 500 and it was not at Mount Panorama. No, that's right. It was uh it was being held at another place. It was being held in uh Victoria, right? It was held at Phillips Island. Mm-hmm. And this was a completely different race altogether. I mean, it'll keep the namesake, right? Because sure. the na- it carried over as we'll find out because I've got kind of the uh the rundown of the the entire race sponsorship all the way through present day and we can if we step through this, it gives us a good picture of the history of the track and we can break off and decide discussions along the way, if you like. Perfect. You that sounds that? like our chronology. And I'll yeah. kind of toss some extra things in here as well. Oh, you know what? I'm, I'm taking a look at my notes here now, and I do have some information on that. You, oh, you found it? Yeah, on the turn. Yeah. Now, the three turns are called the Chase, mm-hmm. and they were added in 1987 in preparation for the World Touring Car Championship that was to be held. Now, the three turns, of course, I mentioned they were to slow down you know, the uh, the fast Conrad straight. Right. Uh, because it's a 90-degree turn called Murray's Corner. I was right with the corner name. I forgot yeah, about the it, but 23rd and final turn. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, uh, you know, these three turns were added not that long ago, 1987. So, you know, they don't go back quite as far as the, uh, the 1938 original 20 turn course. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's move on with this. So you mentioned that it was the Armstrong 500. Now that, this is, this is unusual, Ben. This is a 500 mile race, and that's going to be important in just a minute because we're going to switch over. Or 800 kilometers. Kind of a strange twist here on this whole yeah. thing. It's, yeah. it's strange. All right, so from 1960 to 1962, that's three races, the race was called the Armstrong 500, and it was, again, a 500-mile race held at Phillips Island in Victoria. 
And um, so it's about, what, 800 kilometers, you said, right? Yeah, it's also, uh, it's got a bit of a different aim here. It's kind of a showcase for production cars. They want to see which one has the best combination of speed, performance, reliability, and it's a promotional tool. Now, does this sound like anything to you? This is maybe a quick first side conversation. (laughs) This sounds an awful lot like NASCAR, doesn't it? Yeah, it sure does. It really does. Now, these are four-door sedans, so Mm -hmm. it's a little different. I mean, it's not, you know, quite the good old boys back in the, uh, the, the hills that, you know, have been running whiskey their whole life or anything like that. These guys are drivers that are in, you know, the, the modern sedan vehicles, you know, the four door cars, the saloon cars, which we call sure. sedans. Yeah. And, uh, and, and they're just competing for almost like, it's almost like a manufacturer series, really. You know, they're, they're there to show off their latest and greatest product. Right. Like, uh, almost like an exhibition game in baseball. However, there is one important difference between Armstrong 500 and NASCAR, Scott. And that's that there is an Armstrong company that manufactures shock absorbers and other products. And so this is a big promotional tool for them. Yeah, as will be the case throughout the whole history of the thing. The sponsorship of the race, the main sponsor gets their name up front, you know, mm. front and center on the on the name of the, uh, the the race itself. Right. Now, Na- NASCAR has sponsors for teams, um, but... You know, NASCAR itself does not manufacture shock absorbers. That's right, and but they will have main sponsors for events, so it'll be the sure. uh, the Tide Five Hundred that's run you know, yeah. wherever. I don't yeah. know the names of any of these races. I'm sorry, I should, but I don't. That's just um, an example. Example, yeah, you're right. So, the uh, just a quick side note here: the first race was won by a guy named Frank Code and John Roxborough in a in a Vauxhall Cresta, <laughs> which was the only Vauxhall <laughs> yeah. in a field of 45 cars. Now, take a look back at what a a Vauxhall Cresta looks like, yeah. and you'll think there's no way that car was racing in uh, in 1960. Strange. Much less winning. But uh, here's here's part of the reason the Vauxhall could win. I know we're just sidebars on sidebars here uh, because entry in the Armstrong 500 was limited to unmodified production cars. Oh, okay. So that makes sense then. I mean, there's a there's a possibility for anybody really to step in and win this thing with yeah. the, you know, driver talent, the correct setup in the vehicle. You know, I uh, we could go on all day about it. You know, yeah. Anyway. Sixty-three. They move. Yeah, they move to the Mount Panorama Track and uh, at the uh, the Bathurst, you know, New South Wales location. And the reason was because after only three years, the surface on the Phillips Island Track had broken up so badly that it was completely unsafe for racing. Yep. Uh, and they kept the Armstrong 500 name there because it was becoming a recognizable brand, and the rules explicitly state the same cars in the race have to be identical to the cars that, you know, the average Australian customer could buy in a showroom. Mm-hmm, that's right. And cars like, you know, the Ford Cortina 500 was running. And, uh, you know, just Mini Coopers were were some of the other vehicles that were in this thing. It was a uh, it was a strange mix of vehicles, really. You know, yeah, it was. A weird mix. I don't know, to think about all these cars on the track now, but if you look back at, you know, um, vintage photographs of, of racing during that time, those are the cars you're going to see. And I guess that, you know, 50 years from now, people are going to look back at the cars that are running now and say, well, that's a strange mix that's on the track, but uh, that's just the way it is. It's always going to be that way. Right. But, Scott, I would say here it's it's different and it's a bit strange in comparison to other races just because we have cars that are designed for wildly different uh, uses and applications, right? And this leads to a certain, I don't know, I don't know if I would say inequality, but there's such a spread of stats here that in 67, they have to say a mandated number of pit stops. Yeah, okay. So they start changing the rules up because yeah. things things have to change. They have to adjust. Now, this whole series, this uh, this race on Sunday, sell on Monday thing, 
I mean, it's very, very popular, <laughs> right. right? I mean, it's a, that's kind of an old saying from NASCAR, I guess, you know, because mm-hmm. it's a stock car thing. Yeah. And that, you know how dramatically that's changed over the years. Absolutely. I mean, there's no way you can go in and, and buy what, you know, you see on the NASCAR track. You can buy something that looks similar to the body style you see on NASCAR track, but uh, it's not the same as what it used to be. Yeah, the old days have gone. Uh, that's right. It sound like old guys when we talk about this. We now, do. Now, fans, broadcasters, they started to call this the great race because um, a term that started you know, becoming associated with this race about the 1960s, I guess mid-1960s, uh, it was thought of as kind of like the pinnacle of all of Australian motorsport at the time because um, you know, manufacturers were operating in this uh, in this Australian market, and you know, if they had a win in, in, at the Bathurst track, um, it was just a, a huge boon for their uh, for their industry for it, their for their um, for their brand. It was like their Nurburgring. Yeah, you're right. It kind of was. It's like uh, you're right. It's it's a good way to compare it. We did the, we talk about the Nurburgring with just one lap though. You know, like right. one lap, fastest lap. Yeah. This is a whole race. You got to win an endurance race in order to uh, to claim that uh, that victory. I guess for the year to say. Yeah, we've got the uh, the fastest, the most reliable, the best overall package vehicle that you can you can get. So this is just a piece of context to show you guys how much uh, street cred this carried. If one of your vehicles won the Bathurst, then it became uh, it became like known as the Bathurst Specials. Like that's what inspired mm-hmm. the Australian muscle cars. Uh, called those. And these would be things like the Falcon GT, the GTHO, uh, the Monero, the Tirana. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together. We'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. 
I can keep naming them. <laughs> That's all right. You don't have to. Because the Pacer, a, the yeah, Charger. <laughs> yeah, but not the AMC Pacer. Because a lot no, of people no, are going to no, think no. the AMC Chrysler. Pacer. Yeah, the Chrysler Pacer, which is dramatically different. But anyways, yeah. the idea is there is that you know at this track there's no substitute for cubic inches. These were big, powerful V8 engines that were racing this uh, in the series yeah. all along up until a certain point. And then, uh, you know, we'll talk about that in a minute. There comes a, a time when uh, there's a V6 guy that steps up that uh, kind of raises some eyebrows. But so now we're in the mid-1960s, I guess, you know, 1966 and 1967, and a tobacco company takes over sponsorship of the race, and the race becomes the Gallagher 500. And that is short-lived. Uh, it keeps the it keeps the 500, but in 1968, uh, just a little bit later, a brake parts manufacturer takes over. So the race is renamed the Hardy Ferrodo or HF 500. Mm-hmm. So it's still a 500 mile race at this point. And in 1969, uh, this is the de- debut of one of probably the most famous characters ever to race here at uh, at the uh, the Bathurst 1000. You know, I keep saying it, the Bathurst track, I guess, maybe. Right, yeah. Um, this is when uh, Peter Brock first appears in 1969. So he did not win his first time out, as a lot yeah. of people might think he did. Um, he is a, a significant player in the Bathurst history. Yeah, Peter, King of the Mountain Brock. Yeah. And remember, they call the circuit the mountain. Uh, yeah, he was a driver for the Holden dealer team, and this had been... You know, this is in the midst of the bloody battle between Ford and Holden, right? And I don't think it's too dramatic to say that. No, I don't think it is. Yeah. Uh, they had formed the Holden team earlier in the year to f- uh, start fighting the factory Ford special vehicles division that was turning out the GTHO Falcons. Uh, and then they had a couple of really interesting characters that were also on the team, like Harry Firth, head of the team, uh, who was also known as the Old Fox which I guess means he's clever. Maybe. Who knows? I don't know. Uh, maybe maybe he looked like a, a, an old fox. You know, so his that, name's going to come up later and something yeah. that I want to mention. So um, you know, keep keep uh, Harry Firth in your name. Just putting him on it, the uh, radar. Yeah, keep him in your back pocket there for a while because, um, all right, this is uh, this is something I, need, I think we need to get to because, you know, he didn't win initially in 1969. Brock. Brock did not. Yeah, yeah but it, was, it, it wasn't until 1972 that he got his first win, and this is the first of nine Bathurst wins for him. A uh, feat that hasn't been topped yet today. Right. Yeah. I mean, some people are getting close. There's some, uh, there's some contenders for the, uh, for the Brock title. Some closer, but none better yet. Yeah, I guess so. And, you know, we can talk about Peter Brock, uh, you know, a little bit more in depth right now, but we also should get to, um, the trophy itself because the oh, yeah. trophy for the whole event has been renamed the Peter Brock trophy. And there's a, there's a reason for that and we'll get to it, I promise. But, um, let's keep walking through the time first, though. Yeah, I think we should. So this is 1972. This is his first win of nine at the uh, the Bathurst 1000 race. And get this, Ben. This is where I, the, the dramatic shift. His first win came in a six-cylinder car, which was another first for the Bathurst race. Um, he, he did it driving an upgraded LJ model Toronto GTR XU1, a car mm-hmm. that I have never heard of right. until I started reading about this race. Um, so... He disproved the old adage that we had just mentioned, you know, that there's no substitute for cubic inches at the mountain. Right. Uh, by winning in the six-cylinder car. And it was quite a feat because a six-cylinder car wouldn't win again at Bathurst until 1991. And that was when the Nissan Skyline GTR, the Godzilla car, right. <laughs> won in its, in its first time out, which was, uh, you know, an amazing feat by all means. But, yeah. you know, that goes all the way back to 1972. So between 72 and 1991... This is the only V6 car to ever win at Bathurst. Well, in the 72 year, is it's very important because one of the first questions you would ask yourself is, why the heck 
would you put a V6 in a V8 competition? And it turns out there was some outside driven, uh, some outside political pressure on this, uh, what would later be known as the supercar scare. Oh, this is good. Okay. Yeah. So here's a, here's a, um, I'm going to tell you right now, this is a slightly lengthy sidebar, Ben, but it's called, <laughs> it's called the 1972 supercar scare. Now, how could you not uh, read that headline and, and decide to kind of veer off, right? Right. So here's what happened. All right. This is a, uh, this is a, I guess it's a national controversy in Australia. I mean, it arose in 1972 in regard to the sale of to the public of what they called high-performance race homologation vehicles of Australian-built passenger cars. And we've talked about those cars before, right? Right. We've talked about those cars. Uh, we've also talked about homologation, which is uh, a sort of a... I think a loophole often, and the idea is that if you have a race that requires production cars, then manufacturers or car makers will create the minimum amount of those cars needed for them to count as production cars. Exactly right. So the, the I think the uh, the cutoff here was something like 200 units. Okay. At this point. So okay. So here's what happened. Uh, the the controversy arose when. Um, an article was published by the Sydney-based Sun-Herald newspaper on, uh, I think it was June 25th of 1972. So this is prior to the uh, to the event that's going to happen in October that year, right? And it was written by a guy who was a motoring ju- uh, journalist and commentator and a successful race car uh, rally driver named Evan Green. So this guy's a driver himself. He's been around the sport. You know, he knows the ins and outs of racing, right? And uh, the, the article is titled, 160-mile-per-hour supercars soon. And that's it. Okay. <laughs> so he's saying that soon these, uh, these manufacturers, you know, Holden and Ford and Chrysler are going to build cars that will be capable of speeds up to 160 miles per hour. Well, this, this terrified a lot of people and it's crazy. Now the claim was that, you know, these three manufacturers are going to build these cars. And even though they know that a lot of the road, you know, the, the Australian roads at the time, a lot of them did not have posted speed limits. Right. And other one, other roads did have posted speed limits. And I think that some of the, um, you know, the maximum limit on, on, uh, city roads or, you know, the roads that lead into cities maybe, uh, was something around 110 kilometers per hour, like 68 miles per hour. All right. So, you know, it's not exceedingly, it's not like 90 or 100 or unlimited everywhere. It's just in certain places it's unlimited. Sure. Okay? All right. So the intent was to make these 200 units that you mentioned, um, and make them able to, uh, be eligible for the, um, uh, what do you call that? The Hardy Ferrodo 500? Ooh. Is that what we're calling it? Yeah, the HF. The HF 500. And uh, so, you know, of course, this is a big, big event for them. So, you know, the manufacturers are saying, of course, we're going to be doing this, right? The cars, the, the models that were supposed to be coming out were a 320 horsepower, five liter V8 engine version of the Holden um, LJ Tirana GTR XU1, as I just mentioned, the car I'd never heard of. Right. Um, a 400 horsepower version of the Ford Falcon GTHO, which was like this phase four version of this thing. And an uprated version of the Chrysler Valiant Charger, which was fitted with a 300 horsepower six cylinder engine. So these are strong cars, right? And the Ooh. government's reaction was that, uh, you know, the, the New South Wales transport minister, his name was Milton Morris. Uh, he said that he was appalled that these car, these cars were going to be sold to ordinary motorists. And if manufacturers are making these supercars available to the general public because it's a condition for eligibility, you know, for the Bathurst 500, mm-hmm. then I think it's imperative that race organizers closely examine their rules. So he's saying, 
we're going to put a lot of pressure on you if you go through with this. Which is a little bit condescending if you are a quote-unquote ordinary motorist. <laughs> Definitely. I think so. I mean, you know, to look back now and say, like, well, they're... 160, really? I guess. I mean, it seems a little strange, but I guess they think that everybody's going to go 160 in these cars everywhere, you know, at yeah. all times. In their house, <laughs> from the bathroom to the living room. All right, so the... Uh, and the funny thing is that, you know, the counter agreement from the manufacturers was that these would be the best handling, safest cars on the road. Right. And you know, Peter Brock himself did, however, admit to a couple of things. He said uh, during testing, because he was involved in the testing of the holding car, he said the car was much faster on the straights, but it handled very poorly. Um, it had, you know, This is other kind of cool. Just a cool side note on this. He said it had so much torque that on full acceleration, it broke the windshield. That's, that's a strong car. Yeah. So this stuff, eventually, uh, the, the pressure accumulates and a couple things happen. Holden decides to postpone the introduction of its new V8 Tirana. Uh, originally, they said we'll postpone it for two years. Ford decides to abandon the Phase 4 GT, uh, which was, as you said, based on the XA Falcon. And Chrysler also jumped in and said, you know what, we're just not going to do that charger. Mm-hmm. We're not going to do it. Yeah, they uh, came out with a detuned version of the same engine, I believe, in something else or something like that. Which, again, a, they were about to up to. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the national ban on these cars was set, you know, and all the cars were kind of shelved, I guess is what you could say. And, and the cars were to remain under 130 miles per hour maximum. That was kind of the... Uh, the, uh, the the end result of this whole thing. So then here is our man, uh, King of the Mountain, also known as Peter Perfect Brock, is uh, racing in an XU1. And the race really comes down to between him and a guy named Alan Moffat. And uh, Alan Moffat is driving one of those Phase 3 V8s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but lo and behold, uh, the V6 beats the v- V8. Uh, from what I've been reading, it was primarily... Uh, Brock's handling of the XU. Yeah, he was an excellent driver. Yeah. I mean, he's very, very skilled, and uh, you know that shows all the way through his whole career. I mean, you'll you'll find out that he's a very talented driver. Um, so I think that even though he had a, uh, I don't know, some people might say a lesser machine. I don't know, maybe just a, a little less powerful, but he was able to uh, to come up with a win in 1972, and it was a strange year all around. I mean, everything was really weird. Yeah. Now the following, you know, of course the race went off, you know, as scheduled, just as we we mentioned under the standard. Series production rules for that year. The next year, they did change uh, change the rules. They, Big they, change. They switched over to Group C touring car rules, uh, which would be used until about 1984. Uh, and 73 is also the year that they took it from 500 miles to 1,000 yeah, 1, kilometers. Yeah, this is strange. So from really 800 kilometers to 1,000. Yeah, they went from yeah from 800 kilometers to 1,000 kilometers, but. It's strange that they even changed the name of the whole thing. I mean, it's, it's a 500-mile race. They changed it to a 1,000-kilometer race in 1973. A little bit weird. Now, I want to – this is kind of the uh, the last little bit of this uh, supercar scare side note that I want to okay. mention. yeah. You remember uh, you mentioned um, Firth? Uh-huh. All right. So here's the, uh, here's kind of the wrap-up with this whole thing. Evan Green, the guy that wrote that original article, you know, the one that uh, that started this whole thing, the 160-mile-per-hour supercars coming, coming soon – um, he went on to, you know, continue to be a television motorsport commentator for Channel 7 in Sydney, who were the broadcasters of the Bathurst 1000. Hmm. Right. So he's, you know, there trying to cover the event, right? Well, you can imagine that he wasn't all that popular in the pits. You know, and he had to, he had to tour around and, <laughs> right. you know, let's say, let's say he's doing post, uh, you know, post race interviews or pit interviews maybe during the event. Yeah. Well, for many, many years, uh, he was shunned or given very short answers by Holden dealer team boss Harry Firth. 
and factory Ford driver Alan Moffat for uh, because you know, he was involved in the development of the Ford vehicle too. Yeah. So you know, he, it was uh, like Firth was. You mean Firth was for the Holden team. Yeah, and, but Firth uh, also worked in the past for Ford. Oh, no kidding. Okay, I yeah. didn't know that. All right, so um, you know, he's part of the Holden dealer team at this point. Right. So I didn't know he was a Ford guy, but anyways, the two the two of them really just uh, kind of shut down Evan Green in the pits. You know, from that point on for many many years got after that, that cold shoulder yeah you know it would be kind of funny to to see or hear those interviews knowing the past that they had the shun like, yeah yeah kind of interesting the uh you know the shutdown i guess yeah you know what it would be interesting and i completely agree with them i mean as a journalist he's just doing his job but that uh if i were firth or if i were moffat I wouldn't want to talk to the guy either. Probably not. What are you going to ruin next? Yeah, that's right. My birthday? This is a big deal. I mean, and I'm sure that the manufacturers were pretty upset by it. I mean, you know, this is a big chance for them, and uh, it never really came back, you know? If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, that's true. But the uh, if we go up to the chronology, let's see, we've got we've got the Group C era, and then they walk from they do Group C till uh, how long, Scott? Till about eighty. 
84? Yeah, I think it was about 84 because um, that's when we just mentioned that the uh, the Group C rules were in effect until. So right. I believe that's the you know the chronology of the whole thing. So then after that, it goes from 85 to 92. They go to Group A touring car world uh, rules. And this means that imported turbocharged cars uh, like the Ford Sierra, Nissan Skyline, which you mentioned earlier, Scott, are uh, dominating the race. But the Holden Commodore... Hometown hero, Holden Commodore, managed to claim three wins during this period. Uh, so what what we see here is not one race that has just remained unchanged, but this race that has evolved dramatically from its original uh, from its original point on Phillips Island. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. And now it's uh, still going on today. Very soon, but that's not all we have to tell you because Scott, you mentioned there are several other events going on, several other races, series. Yeah, well, there's a lot that's happened at the track in its in its history. So from 1938 all the way through present day, and I'm going to get back to the sponsorship and you know some more, uh, some more, um, I guess timeline of the of the event itself. Great, but, but uh, I want to tell you that you know it's the Mount Panorama Circuit has hosted a lot of different types of motorsport. Uh, they've hosted the, uh, the world, of course, you know, right now, the world famous super cheap auto Bathurst 1000 that, you know, is going to happen even this year. It's going to yeah. happen in two days from now after we, uh, we publish this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, also the, uh, the, there's a, a 12 hour GT race, another endurance race, um, a 24 hour endurance race that's held there. There's also the Australian touring car championship that's been held there. Um, the Australian motorcycle grand prix has been held there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Australian drivers championship is held there. And the Australian Grand Prix itself has happened there as well. Oh, this is kind of interesting. It hasn't yeah. happened every year, and it hasn't mm-hmm. happened for a long time. There's uh, there's really only four years that it was run there. Uh, Scott, I I owe you an apology, listeners. I owe you all an apology because I just remembered something so interesting. We have to go back. Oh, let's do it. Okay, we talked about those skyline victories, right? Yes. Uh, and they had a run of victories in 1992. There was a, actually a very controversial victory. I saw in my notes and I forgot to mention. No, what is it? Well, okay, so not everybody is a fan of the skyline, right, mm-hmm. uh, in Bathurst. And they wanted it, you know, to be more of a contest between the V8 cars, really between Holden and Ford. Yeah. That's the Cold War going on and, here. And we'll see that in the future. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We will see that in the future, too. Um, so here's what happens. The uh, skyline got victory after the race was stopped following this huge rainstorm that caused a number of crashes, including that of the winning car. In this event, you know, if a red flag happens, results are declared at the last completed lap. Hmm. So the guy who was driving the skyline at the time, or the team, Jim Richards and Mark Scaife, uh, Richards was leading the race in that lap, and his team was declared the winner. Hmm. A lot of the race fans didn't like this, and they were booing it, with um now Noel, uh we're a family show, so you may have to beat me on this one, but they said uh they went to the winner's podium, Richards and Scaife, and uh people were saying things like, This is bloody disgraceful and you're a pack of holes. You can say bloody. <laughs> I'm more worried about the second part. I'm <laughs> uh, just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right. So you know, I've heard that name uh Mark Scaife mm-hmm. many times and I'll tell you he's closing in on Peter Brock's uh title. He's won six times. His first win was in 1991, and then, as you mentioned, in 1992 in the same car. And then he goes on to several other victories in the uh, in the 2000s um, in a Holden Commodore. So he's uh, he's a name that you'll hear often 
associated with Bathurst. Oh, and for the record, those quotes I'm pulling about disgraceful and uh, who's a pack of what, mm-hmm. those came from Jim Richards. Now, how would you like to win a race and have that be the re- your response from the crowd? That would be awful. I mean, it's demoralizing, but you still won. Yeah, I guess. There's controversy throughout this this whole event. I mean, you know, sure. through, through the history of the event. So, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll talk about some, some more controversy as time goes on here. But mm-hmm. uh, let's get back to the sponsorship of the, uh, yes. of the thing. Yeah. And I'll just kind of quickly go through a few of these. And if there's anything of, of interest or of note that we should mention here, uh, we will. Okay. Now. All right. So in uh, 1981, it was uh, it was called the James Hardy 1000. Mm-hmm. So it changed again. In 1988, the Tui's 1000. Um, all these sponsorships just continue to change. I got to make a note about the uh, the 1994 race here. Uh, the two liter Super Touring Car Championship had split off from the Australian Touring Car Championship, the ATCC, right. and these cars ran up at Bathurst that year alongside the V8 cars. With the top, they they placed. Um, I think the first place touring car vehicle was something like tenth place outright uh, for the uh, the works BMW car. So not that bad. They did okay, I guess. But the V8 cars were. Clearly superior in that case, right? Yeah, and there were uh, some growing concerns about that. Yeah, I guess so. So in 1995, um, because the 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 speed difference between the V8s and the uh, the two liter the two liter touring cars, uh, you know the BMWs that I just mentioned and the other right. vehicles that were in that series, uh, the Bathurst 1000 became a one class race for the first time in its history. And in that 1995 race, just 32 Ford and Holden V8s started the race, which was the smallest grid in the entire history of the race. And that can, that format continued uh, through 1996 as well, and mm-hmm. that's when they changed to the is it AMP or is it AMP Bathurst 1000? I think it's just I'm going to say AMP. Yeah, I I was going to say AMP as well. And sponsorship uh, remained, you know, in through AMP the Bathurst 1000 uh-huh. through I believe uh, 1998 because then it changed the FA FAI 1000 in 1999. Mm-hmm. Um, can I make just another uh, quick observation about 97? Because this is a big deal, I think. Ah, uh, is it Primus? It is the Primus. Now, this is a strange little uh, quirk in the history of the uh, of the race. Um, an organizational split happens in 1997 that uh, that creates um, this extra race, I guess, this 1997 Primus 1000 Classic that was run in 1997. Yeah, two weeks after the regular race. And and this would be considered the inaugural season of the V8 Supercar Series. So, you know, fans of the V8 Supercar Series, you'll know that 97 was a big year for you, right? Now, the V8 Supercar Series was a touring car racing category that was based out of Australia, and the vehicles used in the series are loosely based on road-going four-door saloon or sedan cars again. All cars had to use a 5-liter naturally aspirated V8 engine, and I think that the, you know, originally, as we mentioned, Ben, this, this kind of battle, this, uh, this one-on-one competition really on the track. Yeah. Uh, between Ford, uh, the Ford Falcons and the Holden Commodores, uh, they were the only ones that could compete in 1997 <laughs> because of these rules. Right. Yeah. Right. And as of, you know, 2013, there's a, a new generation V8 supercar regulation that has, has, um, kind of opened the door to other manufacturers. And I know we've mentioned this on our podcast before. But 2013 marked the beginning of, uh, like, new competition for, for Ford and Holden in this series uh, because Nissan, Mercedes-Benz, and mm-hmm. Volvo mm-hmm. entered the competition for the first time in 15 years. So um, kind of exciting, you know, that uh, they've got something to uh, to go up against, you know, because before it was just this, uh, you know, the two manufacturers kind of duking it out. Yeah, and uh, also in 2013, uh, 
Ford won the first time since what, 08? I think, yeah, something like that. So it was, uh, it was a big deal. Now, you know, the series is, is a, uh, a very popular series. All the events take place in Australian states and territories. Mm-hmm. And the series is broadcast in 137 countries. So it's big time, uh, you know, television audience for this thing. It has an average event attendance. So this is at the track. The average attendance is over 100,000 people. And some of these big events, like, you know, the, I would assume Bathurst, but maybe not. There's other events that, that are major as well in the series. Some of these get 250,000 people in the stands. I want to take a moment and talk about safety in this race and not as a morbid thing. Uh, but we all know, of course, racing is incredibly dangerous is a reason most drivers can't do it. But the Bathurst 1000 has an amazing safety record in 50 years of racing only three fatalities. That's actually really not that bad at all. I mean, because no, this is, a, impressive, if this is a high speed track. Yeah, especially, I, I'm telling you guys, check out the corners, uh, check out the first and the last turn. You know, and the thing is, Ben, I mean, I was looking up the, uh, the speeds, you know, the top speed is like 186.4 miles per hour. That's 300 kilometers. Per that's hour. on a Conrad, right? Oh, yeah, it is. That's the, uh, the longest straight, but you gotta remember that's, uh, is that uphill? Also, I think it is. It's gen- it's a gentle uphill oh, slope. Gentle. I don't know. Let me. You know what? While we're talking about this, I'm not yeah. gonna I'm not gonna let this go because uh, it's, it's not a gentle uphill. I believe because uh, they call it. They do call it the mountain. Yeah. And uh, now there's a 570 foot di- vertical difference between the highest and lowest points on the track. So this track is not flat by any means. No, I mean, not it's, at all. It's definitely got some up and downhill. Uh, you know, situations happening somewhere on the track. But yeah, Ben. I mean, three—I guess three deaths in uh, in a long, long history. I mean, I know three is three too many by any means. Absolutely. But but, uh, but still, that's really a pretty good record for a big fast track like this. Well, only only two of those were um, perhaps, I guess, car accidents. It's interesting. Just real quick to walk through these. Okay. Uh, in 1986, uh, a privateer entrant named Mike Bergman became the first fatality in the history of the race when his holding Commodore uh, struck a tire barrier at the base of the Bridgestone Bridge. This was at that time called the John Player Special, and he was on the Conrad Strait. So when they built the chase, which is, you know, those other, the other three turns mm-hmm. in 87, it was dedicated to Bergman with a plaque embedded in the barriers. Mm-hmm. In 92, uh, driver, uh, former world, Formula One champion, Denny Hume, uh, after he complains of blurred vision, he suffers a heart attack while he's driving. That's wow. what the doctors decided. So I don't know if you can attribute that to the race. That's you know not, what I mean? Yeah, that's a, that's a tricky one. So he, um, he unfortunately was, uh, he, he was alive at the track where, you know, he had a heart attack and then this caused, you know, lost control of the vehicle. Again, on the Conrad Strait, um, and he was uh, taken to the hospital where he passed away. In 1994, uh, a private entrant from Melbourne, Don Watson, uh, died, but he died during practice. His car left the circuit and hit a barrier again on the Conrad Strait. So this has been, I guess it's been 20 years since there's been a fatality at the track in this event. Is that right? Uh, Since 1994, right? Well, in 2006, there was a driver named Mark Porter who was in a Fujitsu V8 Supercar Series support race on the Friday of the meeting. Hmm. He had been scheduled to compete in the in the uh, 1000, 
but he did not. Okay. So, so yeah, I guess another asterisk on that one, right? Right. I mean, there are asterisks here. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I, you know, but think, still, that's so safe for five decades, more than that. Scott. That's uh, that really is. I mean, that's a that's a pretty darn good record for a a big fast track like this. All right. So I, I think um, the last thing that I wanted to mention here about the split in 1997 is that you know it. it created this Primus 1000 Classic, which, uh, you know, was this uh, this big endurance race with V8 supercars. And mm-hmm. this is what we see today, really. I mean, it's the uh, the birth of this, right? This original, you know, 1000 Classic race was created in response to the desire of the V8 supercar organizers, uh, who was, I think it was a Vesco at the time, uh-huh. um, to compete at the popular Mount Panorama Circuit outside of the traditional Bathurst 1000 event. And so... This is, uh, I, I guess, the the best way to say this, Ben, is that it was it came down to a television coverage dispute uh, between Avesco, uh, which was holding a series contract with uh, with Network Ten, and ARDC, which was the Australian Racing Drivers Club, and they held a contract with the Seven Network, and so they just could not come to terms. They weren't able to uh, to negotiate a deal, and the solution was the Bathurst uh, City Council negotiated a deal between Avesco and uh, and the other this other group. Uh, for a separate race to be held two weeks after the 1997 AMP Bathurst 1000, which subsequently went ahead with a field of Australian and British super touring cars. Mm-hmm. So it was a completely different event held two weeks later, and uh, and that now is the big the big event. Yeah, isn't that weird? Yeah, kind of switched there. Again, that's the strange thing about uh, these sorts of negotiations and uh, rights and arguments and stuff. These splits, these uh, these these negotiations and these deals, these all really complicate things. I mean, think back to when we talked about IndyCar and their uh, you know their dealings with CART and uh, you know mm-hmm. the split that happened there and the then the eventual merge. I guess. I just I feel like the business of racing, although I understand that it is necessary, and for many people, it's the point of having races in the first place. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the business of racing gets in the way of the race mm-hmm. you know too often it does seem that way i agree and uh so you know we were talking about sponsorships yeah and uh after 1997 i think in 1999 that became the fai 1000 and since 1999 this race has been run exclusively for v8 supercars and is now around the v8 supercar championship series so um you know Going back a decent amount of time, I guess at this point, what fifteen years now? Yeah. Um, it, it's uh, it's been exclusively for V8 supercars, and then you know there's still more name changes for this thing. So it, it <laughs> I mean, we'll, let's just quickly go through yeah, so yeah, we can yeah, get yeah, to the yeah. end here because yeah. I'd like to talk about the trophy if we could. Absolutely. How about this? Let's uh, let's go through laundry list. The end. I want to bring some uh, records mm-hmm. out and maybe just laundry list some of the famous winners, and then we'll get to the trophy. Sounds great. All right. So uh, you know, really, it's just four more. Uh, it became the uh, V8 Supercar 1000 in 2001. Mm-hmm. In 2002, it changed over to the Bob Jane T-Marts 1000. <laughs> These are unwieldy names, aren't they? So, uh, some of know. them are. Yeah. All right. And then in 2005, it was renamed the Super Cheap Auto 1000. And then in from 2006 to present, just a slight change in this, it's the Super Cheap Auto Bathurst 1000. Just so, in case you were wondering. Yeah, it's just strange. A little bit, a uh, little change there. And, you know, Ben, can I just say one quick yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah. I know what, that I, I was looking up, uh, you know, super cheap because it, it's, to me, this just doesn't sound like a good name for a, for a racing uh, sponsorship, I guess. Right. Super cheap. I mean, it has kind of a, a funny connotation, but it's a, it's a big deal. I mean, the company's a big deal. 
Um, over the past 15 years, Super Jeep Auto, which is a um, an Australian-based automotive retailer, uh-huh. they've re- they've increased their uh, compound annual revenue like by 25 percent every year. It's a huge, growing industry. They've they're running the game. Yeah, really big. The, um, their their managing director is a guy named uh, Peter Bertels, and I believe that he was um, like CEO of the year last year. He's a big deal. So, um, I, it's a big popular company but to me i mean just when i hear the word super cheap auto i mean yeah. it doesn't really you know spell out quality to me no <laughs> no maybe kidding I, sh- I shouldn't say that I why mean, is that I, I don't know just super cheap uh, maybe, i'm being sarcastic maybe super inexpensive yeah hey did you uh did you know though that they are an auto industry company when you when you first saw the name super cheap yeah yeah i okay. i um i i had the feeling that they were because Going back through the history, you know, all these have some type of relationship to the auto industry. Right. You know, they provide something. But um, this is maybe one of the ones that's uh, a little less um, less obvious. Well, buddy, don't be too distressed because if history of the Bathurst 1000 has taught us anything, it's that the name is going to change. Mm, it's true. That's true. So let's walk through some of the other uh, famous winners here, famous drivers uh, I think it's important for us to note uh, Bob Jane, as you said, he had the race named after him for a time. He won the race four times from 61 to 64, and this led to him creating his fame from that, led him to creating his own automotive businesses, dealerships, uh, tire retailers. Jim Richards, uh, who we mentioned before also, is a close competitor for the uh, rank of the most wins because he won the race seven times and he has the record for the most starts at the event. Uh, and then there's Larry Perkins, third most successful driver. He has six victories. And interestingly enough, Richards and Perkins shared some of their victories as co-drivers. But of course, I say all this to lead us into what? Uh, as As co-drivers with Brock, right? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, that's right. To yeah. lead us into... You left out the Brock name in that right. one. Right. I, I, left, yeah. it, I left it out because there's one guy who's so famous that they changed the trophy for him. I know. It's incredible, isn't it? I mean, there's this Peter Brock guy. All right. So let's, let's explain who Peter Brock is, first of all. Um, Peter Brock was uh, what they call Peter Perfect, or they call him the King of the Mountain, or Rocky yeah. sometimes, I think, are his nicknames. Uh-huh. Um, now, this is... Uh, I, I guess I have to distinguish this, Ben. He's not the Peter Brock photojournalist. An automotive designer from the United States, because here in the U.S., um, there's a guy that, um, well, you know what? We'll talk about Peter Brock in another episode. How about yeah, that? yeah, but yeah. It's not that guy. This is a different guy. <laughs> this is one of Australia's best known and most successful motor racing drivers of all time. Yeah, it's like the Dale Earnhardt of Australia. Yeah, he kind of is. It's, or it, they would call Dale Earnhardt the Peter Brock of the U.S. <laughs> You're probably right. That yeah. would be the way it would be. So he's most often associated with Holden because he drove for them for, I think, 40 years or something like that. The Holden dealer team produced Brock's race cars for, you know, that entire history of him racing at the, at the Bathurst. However, I do want to point out that he did race other vehicles from other manufacturers throughout that time as well. He raced for True. BMW, for Porsche, Ford, Peugeot, Volvo, you know, there are other manufacturers along the way. He won the Bathurst 1000, as we mentioned, nine times. Uh, his first one came on his fourth attempt at the race in 1972, and his final win was in 1987. So he did all of that. Um, in that 15-year time span there. And uh, he also did two hat tricks, which would be three consecutive wins. So he won three times in a row twice. That's pretty incredible, really, I mean, when you think about it. Amazing. I want to say something, though, quickly about his uh, his 1987 win that we just mentioned. Yeah. Um, that was actually w- awarded 
in January of 1988, you know, so long, long after the race is over, because yeah. the two Ford cars that uh, had won the race, you know, the position one and two, were disqualified after they found that they had illegal wheel arches. Now, can you imagine that? I mean, to have the victory of the uh, the Bathurst 1000 taken away from you for illegal wheel arches? Ouch. It's maddening, isn't That's it? But I'm sure way worse than a crowd booing you for winning. But I'm sure Brock was happy. Now, he was in, actually, he, he placed third in the race itself. I mean, he drove across the line third. And I believe that was something else because I think he was in a backup car that he had, he had you know, crashed out or something in mm-hmm. his own car, went to a backup car, and then placed third in that car, and then the first two cars were disqualified. So it's this you know, this complex series of events that led to his ninth victory, but he got it. And, um, you know, a win's a win, right? Right. So <laughs> he also won um, the Sandown 500 touring car race nine times, which is a big deal, because that's the, uh, the Sandown... 500 is the traditional lead-up race to the Bathurst race, so you know he's got all this uh, this momentum going, I guess, for the uh, for the the Bathurst event. Um, he also won the Australian Touring Car Championship three times, and he also won the Bathurst 24-hour race just one time, but he did win, and that's important. <laughs> so you know it's a big it's a big deal. He's a he's uh, you know inducted into the V8 Supercar Hall of Fame in 2001, uh-huh. and unfortunately, Ben he passed away in 2006 on September 8th in 2006. He's only 61 years old when he died. It was uh, an accident during a rally, the uh, Targa West event. Exactly right. And that was near, uh, it was in Perth, uh, which is in Western Australia, mm-hmm. right? Uh, also sometimes called the most isolated city in the world. I could understand why. I've seen photos from this event. It's uh, They're way out there. And um, he skidded off the road, I guess, hit a tree in his uh, his 2001 Daytona sports car. And uh, this is where maybe the the other Peter Brock comes into play here, because this is kind of an unusual twist to this whole thing. Now, he skidded off the road, you know, high speed and, and crashed this 2001 Daytona sports car. And the D- Daytona sports car is an Australian-built reproduction of the Shelby Daytona Coupe from 1964. You know, a U.S. Yeah, car, an American yeah, yeah. car. And coincidentally, that car, you know, the uh, the original Shelby Daytona car from 1964 was designed by the other Peter Brock. How about that? How weird is that, huh? That is weird. I know. It's pretty strange. So this guy was such a, uh, a national hero, a uh, you know, a pillar Mm-hmm. of the racing community, that they decided that in 2006 uh, they were going to honor his name by, um, you know, changing the name of the trophy, the, uh, the, the the trophy that's given out at the end of the Bathurst 1000, uh, to be called the Peter Brock Trophy. Mm-hmm. And that uh, that 2006 race also had uh, various special tributes to Brock, uh, as well as a champion's lap of honor featuring uh, his past co-drivers uh, parading uh, cars that Brock had won the race in. So, that's a know, nice tribute. Yeah, I think that I think that's a, a really nice one. And the trophy now reads King of the Mountain, uh, nickname of Brock's. Uh, the trophy weighs about six pounds, and it's 20 inches tall, uh, just in case you haven't seen it before. And there, ladies and gentlemen, is the background to the Bathurst 1000. Yeah. Now, if you are one of the lucky, well, I can't say lucky few because there are tens of thousands of people that are going to check it out. If you were one of the people who were lucky enough to get there, though, uh, we would love to hear from you. We hope that you enjoyed the history of this. And I know we went a little bit long on this one, but there was a lot of stuff to talk about. And there might even be one more thing. Yeah, maybe. You know, can I... Can I have one more thing? Yeah, yeah. Oh, please, yeah. All right, my own one more thing. No, it's your one more thing. I'm oh. talking about your thing. This is it, then. One more thing. 
All right, I just wanted to mention that this uh, this 2014 event, the one that uh, that you know is coming up right now this year, you better get to it right away if you can because it's happening just days after this podcast airs initially. So uh, the 2014 event is held on the second Sunday of October, which is October 9th through 12th, 2014. So if you can get there, get there by all means because it's uh, it's quite an event. I've been watching video from this uh, from this race um, for the last few days, Ben. You know, just checking you know some of the amazing last laps type things, you know, yeah. and, and stuff that we like to watch in lead up to uh, a podcast like this to kind of get in the mood of, you know, the feel for the the place, right? The event. And uh, it's, it's so fast. It's so exciting. It's so, um, you know, the, the announcers add a lot to it because they're excited and um, it's just, it's a great event. It's fun to watch. And uh, if you can make it to this thing, you know, October 9th through the 12th, I say by all means go. But we want to make a deal with you only only go if you promise to write to us about it later. Maybe take a photo or two. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Scott. Now listen, Australia. <laughs> I mean, I don't know why I'm addressing the entire country. <laughs> but just in, just in case, yeah, we really would legitimately, sincerely love to hear about this because we have not had a chance to travel down there yet. Uh, if you would like to check out some more of our episodes about races visit carstuffshow.com where you can check out every podcast we have ever made and oh buddy there are quite a few yes there are we got to be uh, getting into the uh, well what 610 range something like that yeah i'm just gonna forget about the number until we hit a thousand yeah i think i will too so uh you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are carstuff hsw and if you want to Take a page from our excellent listener, who, uh, Aaron, who suggested this episode. You can write to us directly. We are carstuff at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at Viking.com.